I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. From Pineapple Street Studios, I'm Eric Metal, and this is Stay Away from Matthew McGill. Part 3, Cindy. It's a Tuesday afternoon, almost dusk, and I'm driving in a part of South Florida where everything looks a bit like everything else, about halfway between Miami and Orlando. (coughs) There are strip malls and little leagues and big box stores. Of course, it's hot. At one point, I pull into the parking lot of a Dollar General to change my shirt because I'm sweating so much. It's the sprawl. It's home. Inside Matthew McGill's box are a bunch of Polaroids from the 1980s, taken in apartments around here. There are letters of recommendation from friends and family trying to get him on a local chamber of commerce. There's one from his uncle, the alligator wrestler, and another from his mom's former boss, a U.S. congressman. There's also a single cassette tape, the one recording I have of Matthew's voice. He made it when he lived here. And on the tape, he talks about his trouble with the government, going on the run and changing his name from Dora Watkins to Matthew McGill. I wanted to understand exactly what had happened. Matthew's first wife, Jenny O'Hara, had painted an intense picture of their life together in New York. At times, beautiful, but also very painful. But by all indications, Matthew's life in Florida was pretty different. And I wanted to meet the person who was with him at the time. It was one of his old girlfriends, the one he had supposedly gone on the run with in the 80s. Her name was Cindy Day. I had a phone number and a possible address for her, north of Miami. But the phone number wasn't working, so I decided to go down and see if I could find her in person. It's late in the day when I pull on to what I think is Cindy Street and drive past what I think is her house. It reminds me a lot of the house I grew up in. A small, gray, suburban home with a scrappy lawn, like the face of a 22-year-old who can't really grow a beard but refuses to shave. There's a big guy standing in the front yard on the phone, shirtless, in camouflage shorts. He's bald. He's got pro-wrestler vibes. He's standing next to a giant pickup truck with an assault rifle decal on the back window. I park on the corner and watch as the man walks inside the house. I'm nervous about approaching the door. This isn't something I normally do. But there's something about being back in Florida that gives me undue confidence. Always has. It's like how I can smell when a storm is coming in the late afternoon, or how I instinctively look for hills of fire ants on the edge of a yard. Despite having moved north years ago, Florida still feels like my turf. So I get out of the car and walk up the driveway to the front door, keeping an eye out for fire ants. The door has some glass bricks bordering it, so I can see inside the house a little. I knock, and a giant pit bull rushes the door, barking, losing its mind. The shirtless man approaches, grabs the pit bull by the collar, and opens the door. Hello, he says. Who are you here to see? He's so chipper. I might actually be at the wrong address, I say. I'm looking for Cindy Day. Oh, sure, 
he says, and turns his head inside. Looks like he's here for you. From around the doorframe, I see a woman sitting on the couch with vibrant red hair. She's wearing a black screen-printed t-shirt with two wolves and a geometric shape on it. She reminds me of Gina Davis in Thelma and Louise. She stands up and comes outside. I introduce myself, say I'm a journalist working on a story about someone I think she may have known, Matthew McGill, or when she knew him, Dora Watkins. Her eyes widen, and she seems to lose her balance a little. She leans back on the house for support. I tell her Dor died recently, and I was trying to understand what happened to him at the end of his life. Dad explains why I haven't heard from him, she says. Why are you doing a story about him? I tell her he seemed to have lived an incredible life, and I just wanted to know how he ended up so alone. He had a lot of stories, she says. I never knew what was true. I apologize for being the one to deliver this news to her. I know it must be weird to have a reporter show up on your doorstep like this. Cindy's very gracious, however, and offers to talk to me if I come back the next day. Which I do. Cindy has a few dogs. The little one is Daisy. She sounds like the little one. The big one is Rosie, a pit bull mix. Rosie, stop. Despite Cindy's best efforts, Rosie will go on to spend the next 30 minutes laying on my lap, panting in the Florida heat. She's such a cute dog. She's real sweetheart. Yeah, isn't that cute? Cindy's married now to the big guy from yesterday, and they have three kids, one teenager and two grown. One's a Marine. Cindy is tall, energetic, and lanky. You feel like at any minute, she'll swing an arm around and knock something off the wall. Her fight-or-flight energy is all fight, And to add to the surrealness of the experience, her 65-year-old mother is in the room with us the whole time. They sit next to each other in reclining chairs. I'm going gray before my mother. Okay, she wants gray hair. I don't want it. I'm like, can you just care? I turned 50 and everything's falling apart. I don't get it. Cindy is fun and funny. I'm such a klutz. I've got a metal plate and six screws in that ankle. I mean, I've broken both my ankles twice. I broke this little toe. See how it's crooked? Well, it sticks out there now, so it keeps catching on things. But I've broken it seven times. It's not even connected. She is so unlike anyone I've talked to for Matthew's life so far. And so I settle in on the couch next to Rosie, and I asked Cindy to tell me how she fell in with Matthew McGill. Cindy grew up in South Florida. Her parents divorced when she was just 10, and her mother moved to Wisconsin, leaving Cindy and her three younger brothers with their dad and his new wife. She ran track and cross-country in high school and had a job at a call center. One day in 1984, when she was 17 years old, Cindy had a serious but not devastating car accident on the way into work. That afternoon, during her shift, a very handsome man who worked in the same plaza walked into her office and he asked her boss what had happened to the car. He had seen it in the parking lot. So we all turned around and looked, and through the lattice work, I mean, we just met eyeball to eyeball, and he he was talking to my supervisor, and he kept looking back at me, and, and, and then he was talking to her, and then he found out it was my car. The man, of course, was noted hottie Matthew McGill, or as he was known at the time, Dor Watkins. He walked over to Cindy's desk and asked her about the car, said he could help her out. He worked with cars. The two of them headed off, and before long, they were going out. I would come visit him. 
after I got off of work and we'd spend time talking and drinking and eating and he introduced me to some foods that were like prosciutto. I'd never even heard the word, let alone had the food. I mean, stuff that I'd never been exposed to. You know, rich people eat stuff like that. I was 17 and he was 38, 21 years older. And how did, how did your family feel about it? Horrible. Your mom just gave me a look from the, she gave me a little side glance. I, I was with a man that was older than either of my parents. I should say that this age difference is pretty troubling, and it's hard not to assume some less than pure intentions on Dora's part, dating someone so much younger. But Cindy and I talked about it, and even still, it doesn't bother her much. She knew she was young and impressionable, but she says she felt genuinely in love. Nobody in school was paying attention to me. I had no interest in these immature, stupid, slam-each-other-in-the-locker baloney. Sometimes I would look at them and I would just think of myself as older than than them because I felt older than them. I was interested in conversation and travel adult stuff. And he was like this rich, handsome, amazing man. Dor told Cindy he came from a wealthy family grew up around horses. He told her he had lived in New York in his 20s and that he had been an actor. He drove a nice car, and he was kind to Cindy. I felt like I had just hit the jackpot. Like, what an amazing man. And look how much he cares about my my well-being. You know, nobody had done that in so long. I must have held my own because we kept going out. As amazing as Dora was, Cindy did have moments, even early on, where she was left scratching her head. On July 30th, 1984, after dating for six months, Dora took out a full-color, quarter-page ad in the newspaper in La Crosse, Wisconsin. It's where Cindy's mother was living. Cindy was visiting her. The ad was a marriage proposal. It read, You have shown me happiness beyond all measure. Marry me in 84. Here I am. Barely 18, barely out of high school. Here's a man more than twice my age, and he's asking me to marry him. And yeah, he's my prince, but I'm only 18. Yeah. Yes, the quarter page ad. Will you marry me type thing? Here she's asking me to marry him. I want to go to college. I mean, it was just like, um, 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 uh, can I think about this? Dora also gave an interview to the paper about the ad. On the front page, under the bizarrely prescient headline, Florida man uses ad to propose. The article reads, Dor Watkins could have taken Cindy Day out for a romantic dinner and popped the question, but he said he wanted to make sure she and everyone she cares about knows how he feels about her. Quote, it's like getting a bugle and standing on a roof, he told the paper, going through the streets like a town crier. It seemed like the thing to do. Reading the article, it reminds me so much of the sign Dor taped to his back for the opening of Jenny O'Hara's Broadway musical, She's My Wife parading up and down the aisle. It's a grand gesture, but also a deeply narcissistic behavior. Cindy wasn't prepared to respond, so ultimately, she did not marry Dor in 84. But they did stay together. Looking back now, the whole thing seems like an obvious red flag. Caught me so off guard, and I think it hurt him, because I said I'd think about it instead of yes, 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 you know?
In the mid-80s, Dort was making his money on imported luxury cars, Porsches, Lamborghinis. He worked with a small company, buying cars from Europe, importing them to the U.S., and then making technical adjustments so they met U.S. standards. Emissions, things like that. Then they would resell the cars at a premium. That's where Dort came in. He was the resell guy. I have a bunch of lists of cars they were working with at the time. A red 1986 Ferrari 328 with cream interior. A diamond metallic BMW 325. A handful of Jaguar Sovereigns in colors like Doe Skin, Regent, and Mulberry. For Cindy, they felt like a gateway to a whole new life. I got to drive a BMW to school one day, or he dropped me off in a Jag, or we'd, I'd get to drive the Audi. I mean, whatever car he happened to be in the process of getting sold. It was fun. It was like, yeah, I got me a car. <laughs> Mercedes today. I was like loving life. Cindy helped Dora out with the cars. She ran a little detailing business called Posh, cleaning the interiors, polishing the lights. She enjoyed it, and it allowed them to work together. So he got in on this, and, and literally the first group was fine. Everything fine, no problem at all. Ordered more cars, and all of a sudden, one of the cars the VIN came back is stolen overseas. My name is Dor Watkins. Until two weeks ago, I and Cindy Marie Day lived in Stewart, Florida. This is from the two-sided cassette tape that was inside the box, recorded in 1986. It's Dor himself the only recording I've ever been able to find of him. On the tape, Dor outlines, beat by beat, his version of what happened with these cars, what he sees, ultimately, as the beginning of his downfall. This tape details from memory an outrageous criminal action by a United States customs agent who viciously lied to a federal attorney. Dor is thorough and indignant. The whole fiasco starts when he decides to go in on a white 1986 Mercedes 300E. It's a beautiful car, the kind you'd imagine a mafia kingpin getting shuttled around in. Dor, with a financial backer and a partner overseas, agreed to import the car from Europe and then resell it. But when the car made it to the port of Jacksonville, there was trouble. When validating the VIN, the vehicle identification number, for the sale, I and the bank independently discovered that the car was stolen. Then, according to Dor, he started running other VIN numbers on other cars he had recently imported. According to documents from the time, about six of those also came up stolen. This was the worst news of all. My recurring nightmare of importing cars is the chance of winding up with one which has been stolen in Europe. I had been careful, but I let my guard down this time. To be clear, Dor Watkins was not stealing cars himself. This was not gone in 60 seconds. This was whatever comes after Gone in 60 Seconds, when you have to find a way to make money off the stolen goods. Only Dor claims to have not realized that the goods were stolen at all. To whom should I go with this information? What agency would be likely to capitalize on the information while protecting Cindy and I from the repercussions? Dor called multiple law enforcement agencies. He called the FBI, the county sheriff, he thought if he gave them all the information he had, he'd be off the hook for being involved. Eventually, he made contact with two agents, one at the FBI and one at U.S. Customs. But a few weeks later, things took a turn. It was September 3rd, 1986, around 4.30 p.m. Cindy, who was now enrolled at the local community college, was just getting home from school. I came home 
and there was like three cop cars, a suburban, two other like detective looking cars, just what's going on? I had a really bad feeling. I thought, oh my gosh, I hope nothing's happened to the door. The warrant was served and executed in a 10-man armed raid at our home. First thing they did was they held me in the living room, and when Cindy came home, they held her there as well. So I go walking in, and there are three guys in the kitchen. There's three guys in the living room. There's guys everywhere. All of a sudden, I'm like, they're like, who are you? And I'm like, I live here. What's going on? You need to go sit on the couch. I have copies of the search warrant and the affidavit applying for that search warrant. Door kept copies in the box, along with this tape. On the forms, a U.S. Customs agent says that Door consistently withheld information about the vehicles and his supplier. Door had been served a grand jury subpoena a week earlier, but refused to turn over the material. That's when Customs initiated the raid. These Customs agents ransacked our home, taking all business and personal belongings of even the slightest value. They came up with what is characterized as less than 20 grams of marijuana in the icebox combined. They found a three-inch straw, 15 months old, with residue of cocaine in it. Well, that's true. So they arrested us. So that, that got us out of the house. Cindy and Dorr were held at the county jail for a few hours on minor drug charges before eventually making bail. By the time they returned home, law enforcement was gone. When we got back at 8.30 that night, it was just an absolute disaster. The house had just absolutely been destroyed. It was just unbelievable. The house was literally torn apart. The closet was completely cleared out. They took the answering machine in case there might have been messages on it. All our brochures, all our, our letterhead, fax machine, filing cabinet full of past orders, future orders, private papers in there from his past and divorce papers and, you know, private stuff it was all in a box in there. They moved everything out. Gone. Just gone. Wiped out any ability I had to make a living. Business is gone. All the equipment is gone. Everything gone necessary to make a living. Totally devastated us. They took a bunch of Polaroids of the apartment that night and door kept them in the box. The place is a disaster. Stuff thrown across the floor and pulled from closets. You can see Dor in some of the pictures, on the phone. He's in a purple polo shirt with horizontal stripes, tucked into his khakis. I'm pretty skeptical of looking into someone's eyes in a photo and trying to interpret them. But I think it's safe to say, in these photos, Dor looks pissed. We felt destroyed. How do you go from having an office and, and working full-time and having files, and how do you go from having an up-and-running business to having everything taken away and no way to do anything? All in all, the cops took 19 boxes of material from Dora and Cindy's place. The U.S. Customs Department is a shameful slime, and whoever hears of this will think again before reporting a crime. The FBI put their face in the sand and said, I know nothing. We had a good life, and now all of a sudden we didn't have a life. That, I remember that. I remember the empty feeling, just empty and hollow and just stolen. It was stolen from us. There was no reasoning for it. Overnight, Cindy's life was upended, and then Dora got paranoid. It was just no longer safe for us to be together. This was one hell of a major theft ring operating in several countries. 
I discovered it, I reported it, and I have to go to the ground to stay alive. And then he left to go into hiding. After the break, Dor goes on the run. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest who celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Uh, I'm going to pause for one second yep. and switch up my batteries. I'm Back in Florida, about 45 minutes into the interview with Cindy, we pause so I can reset and she can have a cigarette. One of the things I like about Cindy is how much she reminds me of my mom, her spunk, her common sense, but also her smoking. My mom smoked constantly when I was growing up, Marlboro Light 100s, and the secondhand smell always takes me back to our patio, where my mom would light up a pack a day. I remember this one weekend when I was having a rough stretch in school, and so my mom offered to read Great Expectations to me out loud while she smoked so I could take notes. I'm not really one for Dickens, but there are a couple lines that still stick with me, even now. Like, and it was not until I began to think that I began fully to know how wrecked I was and how the ship in which I had sailed was gone to pieces. And, my personal favorite, there was something very comfortable in having plenty of stationery. Cindy and I settle back in, and I ask her to tell me what happened next, how Dor got to the point of changing his name. Within days of the raid, Dor fled north, to Georgia. He settled in a swampy area near the coast and got to work starting a new business, selling plants. He also sunk into a deep sense of exile. The cassette tape I have, Dor seems to have recorded many copies of it and mailed it to anybody he thought could help clear his name. I have handwritten drafts of the message on legal pads. Back in South Florida, Cindy took a job on a tree farm and moved into a smaller apartment. Until a few months later, when she got a call from Dor. He told me that he was changing his name. It was after the car thing, and he was feeling paranoid. And his name, Dor Watkins, was attached to this stolen vehicle, and the FBI, and the CIA, and all this other stuff, and he wanted a fresh start. 
So he decided on the name Matthew. And then I don't know where Miguel came from. But that was the name that he chose was Matthew Miguel. Miguel, it turns out, was a family name on his father's side. Though not one door was all that familiar with. According to a receipt in the box, his first shot at changing it, he spelled the name wrong. M-A-G-G-I-L-L. He had to pay a lawyer to have it corrected to just one G. All in all, it cost $160. Shortly after, Cindy decided to move to Georgia and be with Thor, or um, Matthew, and to help him run his new plant business. She was still young, just 20 or so, and in a lot of ways, she was excited for another adventure. She was still very in love with Matthew. The raid and the cars gave them a sort of Bonnie and Clyde quality. The new nursery was in a town called Brunswick, and the work was feast or famine. One year, they did a big job for a water park on Jekyll Island, installing massive palm trees around the attractions, tens of thousands of dollars. Then, the next year, the business flooded, literally flooded, wiping out the plants. It's just the story of my life, always owing money, just never enough to pay the bills. <laughs> just run out. <laughs> Matthew was always owing money? Always owing money. We were always behind. Always, always, always. It was crazy. I feel like it's my life that does it because I'll go through periods of doing very well and having enough to really live a good life. And then it'll be periods of like complete drought where we're on cutoff notices and on the edge of getting evicted and just, the, it's a literal roller coaster. And I was on it with him and I'm on it with my second husband. So I'm like, it's gotta be me. I don't know. I feel like I, my family was like that growing up too. I think a lot of people are on that roller coaster. It's not a roller coaster made for one, you know? It sure feels like it. The ups and the downs and the lack and then the, the excess. And it's just, it, it, we were up and down. Things were up often enough that Cindy took Matthew's name unofficially. She started going by Cindy Day McGill. I always laugh. I say I hyphenated my name and then it became a minus sign. <laughs> did you did you talk about marriage? Yes, we did. In fact, he promised me that he would take me away one weekend. I ended up doing a little surprise. And I had arranged to have a ring made for him with a little inscription on the inside. What did it say? Don't remember. Wow. That's sad. I don't remember. I remember having it done. I remember picking it up. I remember we had a fight on Friday and I remember throwing the ring at him. He tried to accuse me of having an affair or something. I'm like, really? <laughs> what are you talking about? I thought tomorrow we were going to go get married. You want to know my affair? Here's my affair. I was mad. And we never went. And then all of a sudden, a sod truck arrived Saturday morning, and I thought to myself, why would he arrange sod if we were going to go away? And, and we never talked about marriage after that. It was at this point, around 1990, that life with Matthew McGill became harsher. Cindy wanted to get married. Matthew, despite his earlier proposal, did not anymore. Cindy wanted children, but they couldn't get pregnant. She said they tried for years. Matthew could be irritable and mean. What finally ended things was an ugly night at home. We had a really bad fight. He had butted me, put me to the ground, 
we were just out of frustration and anger, I'm sure. And it shocked me, like, and it put me to the floor, and it... Had he ever hurt you before? No. He had never done anything like that before. So it must have been a real shock. Oh, yeah. Horrible. Like, spun my head around. Like, whoa, 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 you know? I was sitting on the floor going, uh, no, we're not playing this game. This is not happening. Checking my head. I'm, like, freaking out, and he was too volatile, and I was not going to take it, and... I saw some of that as a child. I had too much life to lead, and I wasn't about to be treated like that. And we talked about it, and we decided this just wasn't going to work, and that I needed, I needed to go. Cindy left town, went back to live with her mom for a while. Before long, she had reconnected with an old fling and was pregnant. She and Matthew talked a handful of times over the last 20 years, but it had been a while. The last time she tried him, he didn't pick up. There is one question about Matthew McGill that took a long time to occur to me, and then quite a bit more time to actually answer. His original name was Dor Watkins, and he legally changed it to Matthew McGill. But the question is, did he actually need to change his name? He was on the run, but was anybody chasing him? As far as I can tell, the answer is no. After the raid on his and Cindy's apartment, there's no record of the case moving much further. There were the local drug charges because cops found some marijuana in the house. But when I spoke with the customs agent who initiated the whole thing, he said they basically dropped it after the raid. The FBI agent on the case never heard anything about it ever again. Not until I called him. A business associate of Doors remembers the whole thing fizzling out. Even Cindy says the case slowly faded away. So, what gives? It wouldn't occur to me for some time, but I think the whole thing points to a fundamental part of Doors' character. What could have been a footnote in his life, a bad business deal that led to a night in jail because the cops found some weed, instead became a persecution. Dor Watkins a man who even the authorities did not want much to do with, a man who seemed to push every significant person in his life away, was now a forever victim. He'd created a scenario where, for the rest of his life, he could be convinced. Somebody was looking for him. I brought a bunch of material from the box to show Cindy, figuring she'd like to see it. Maybe it would jog some memories. I showed her the list of all the items taken from their apartment. Wow, they made a, a list? See, I never saw this thing. Wow. I showed her pictures of Matthew with his dog from about 10 years after she left him. He's at his nursery. It looks like December. He's doing Christmas trees. He looks great. What a beautiful puppy. I could be doing Christmas trees. <laughs> I also played the tape for her. Her eyes got big when I turned it on. She smiled a bit. You see how he uses big words. We were still in, in La La Love. I mean, it was the beginning. It was fresh. It was hot. It was fun. It was amazing. It was just 
I had an amazing time with that man. He showed me so many things, opened my mind up. He did give me self-confidence, the ability to stand on my own two feet without feeling like I don't have anybody there to get me. At least now I know what happened. When you showed up at the door, I mean, I was wondering because I hadn't heard from him and the number was disconnected. And I was like, I wonder if he's gone. And he is. Great man has left the earth. He's, he did his own things in his life. He did a lot of great things for, for himself and for me. <laughs> but I'm glad that you came because at least I know where he is. I wrap up with Cindy, thank her, scratch her dogs behind the ears, and head out to the car. I get back on I-95 and head north toward Orlando. At this point, Matthew was starting to seem like less of a mystery to me. In fact, he was pretty predictable. Everyone I talked to, the first thing they mentioned was how handsome Matthew was. Someone told me he could charm the pants off an Iron Maiden, which doesn't totally make sense, but I do like the image. He would draw people in, be incredibly effusive, showering them with compliments and grand gestures. And that stuff was real. Both Cindy and Jenny talked about how meaningful those moments could be. But then, something would change. He'd become jealous or paranoid. He'd need control. In the lowest stakes situations, say, if you were buying some sod from him, you'd just be left with a lawn full of dirt. But if you were close to him, he could turn violent. I started this whole thing out wondering how someone like Matthew could wind up so alone at the end of his life. Someone who had come from money and opportunity, someone who had lived a legitimately interesting life. But after talking to a bunch of people who knew him well, and genuinely cared about him. It seemed pretty obvious. Matthew was terrible. He was a run-of-the-mill bad man. Not the kind that winds up in jail or in the headlines, but the kind that makes other people's lives really, really difficult, while getting by on his charm and looks and connections. I couldn't stop thinking about Jenny and Cindy and how hard it must be when someone you truly love is like that. Maybe not a monster, but self-involved and blind enough to not recognize how much they can hurt you. I passed the exit for Highway 70 on my way to the airport in Orlando, the exit I would take to go home and see my family. For a long time, whenever I was back in Florida for a story, I'd be sure to tell my folks. My dad would always ask for my flight itinerary. I got the impression just knowing I was physically closer made both him and my mom feel better. But recently, I had stopped making even that small effort. Something had happened as we'd all gotten older, and I was drifting away from them. We were barely talking, almost never seeing each other. It's like somebody just stopped weeding the garden. And before I knew it, the whole thing became unrecognizable. A shadow of my former family. There is a part of me that wishes I could take this exit, hop across the state and spend an evening with my folks. Talk with them. Tell them about Cindy and this story. Maybe even have a smoke with my mom. Ask for advice. But there is another, bigger part of me that very much does not want to do that. That gets anxious even thinking about it. Exhausted. 
the kind of exhaustion that only thinking about family can create. And so I keep on driving. I don't feel good about it, but it's the choice I make. I get to the airport, return the rental car, sit down in the terminal, and wait for my flight. Matthew didn't have any friends or partners at the end, and that made sense. But what about his family? Where were they? At what point did they finally give up on him? And why? I decided to call Matthew's brothers, and suddenly, things felt much closer to home. That's next. Stay Away from Matthew McGill was created by me, Eric Mennel, with Pineapple Street Studios. It's produced by Elliot Adler and me, edited by Joel Lovell and Hilary Frank, editing help from Lisa Pollock. The executive producers at Pineapple Street are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky, fact-checking and research by Sarah Ivory, mixing by Hannes Brown. Special thanks to Carmen Maria Machado. Production management by Grace Chen, social by Hadim Jang, marketing and visuals by Kurt Courtney and Josefina Francis at Cadence 13. Unlicensed podcast therapist, Rachel Ward. Early reporting for this project was supported by Gimlet Media. Original scoring by Blank Forms. Our credit song, On the Cusp, is by the band Any Kind. This show is a co-production of Pineapple Street Studios and Odyssey. Odyssey is home for all the podcasts, music, news, and sports audio that matters to you. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y. You can binge this whole series there. It is available for free in the App Store or on Google Play. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y.